Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Monocle on Culture is brought to you in association with the Walmart Company. Every week on Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound and his guests discuss what has piqued their interest in our one-stop shop for lively reports and in-depth interviews on the newest and finest in art, film, books and media. At the Walmart Company, we are just as passionate about the curation of The Perfect Wardrobe. Fashion from the most versatile, sustainable, all-round fibre, wool. Wool microfibres are biodegradable, making wool an eco-friendly choice for heavily washed items such as sportswear. Super soft and breathable, merino wool is both luxurious and practical. It's also long-lasting, making it the perfect material for an investment piece. You might say Australian merino wool is a miracle fibre. Renewable, biodegradable and completely natural. Research by Nielsen into the wardrobes of a thousand global consumers showed that woolen items were among the most durable pieces of clothing that people own, staying in their wardrobes for longer than clothing made from other fibres. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture with me, Robert Bound. Today we're discussing Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman, the story of Frank Sheeran, a 1950s truck driver turned hitman who worked for the mob and became union boss Jimmy Hoffa's right-hand man before Hoffa disappeared in 1975. Sheeran, a real-life hitman, confessed to at least 25 murders in the book I Heard You Paint Houses, and Scorsese's scriptwriter Steve Zalian used this book for the basis of the film. The Irishman features Scorsese's old-school cast. Robert De Niro is the Irishman, Frank Sheeran. Al Pacino is Jimmy Hoffa. Joe Pesci is Russell Buffalino. Anna Packin, Sheeran's daughter Peggy. And Harvey Keitel is Angelo Bruno. Names? There are a few. The Irishman is 210 minutes long. That's three and a half hours in real money and costs Netflix, on whose platform the film will live after its cinema release, $160 million. Well, there's a lot to discuss, and joining me to do so are the film critics for The Daily Telegraph and The Observer, respectively, Tim Roby and Simran Hans. Welcome both to the programme. Lovely to have you here. Tons to talk about with The Irishman. Let's set it up with a clip so that we know in what universe we're inhabiting. Frank, 
Sheeran. Is that right? Yeah, you said it right. Uh, under the contract, management can only fire a driver on very specific charges. So, you ever show up late? No. Do you have any moving violations? No. Do you drink on the job? No. Do you ever hit anybody? On a job? Yeah. I don't think so. All right, then. We don't have nothing to worry about. Okay, so we have a bit of the style of the Irishman right there. That is, uh, that is Robert De Niro on kind of classic form. Or is he? This is a long film, Tim. Were you engrossed for all of the 210 minutes of The Irishman? I'm going to say I was enthralled. I was more than engrossed. I was enthralled. It's tempting and too easy to kind of stereotype Scorsese as the the crime thriller guy, the mob uh-huh. chronicler, you know, because some of so many of his famous films are in that world and it neglects all the other various films that he's made. But I've got to admit, I'm almost ashamed to say how satisfying it is to find him back in this world and in this mode. And I kind of dared hope that this film might be, you know, a great, great comeback for him in a way that some of his more recent, very acclaimed films haven't, for me, quite been. And it is. It's fantastic. I think it's phenomenal. I was completely with it. And especially as it built towards the end in this last hour, which is some of the best direction of his career, I think. And phenomenal work from De Niro, particularly towards the end. I am fully on board this film, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again in like two days' time. Okay. Um, for me, it is, it is his best film since the '90s, and I, you know, there are other people who will argue Wolf of Wall Street is up there, or they might say Silence is up there. Uh-huh. Some people might even say, you know, Kundun and certain other films. Not for me. This is the one, and I think it has some of the, the most mature subject matter of his films, regardless of the setting, that the subject is a bit different in terms of the psychology and the kind of sense of waste in this film, I think, which is like, for me, the, the keynote of it. OK, Simran, let's let's get this out of the way so that we know if we're taking sides, whose we have to take. Tim says it's some of Scorsese's best ever work in his career, certainly later career. What about you? I have to agree. But first, I want to have a, I want to say a note on the length because, you, you know, yeah. you brought it up straight away. And I think it's something that people are talking about, especially the fact that the film is a Netflix movie and will be available to kind of stream at leisure at home. Scorsese has been making long films for a very long yeah. time. <laughs> you know, New York, New York is two hours, 45 minutes. Casino is three hours. Wolf of Wall Street is three hours. Games New York is a long film as well. Wait, I have some more. The Silence, yeah. Silence, two hours, 41. The Departed, two hours, 30. Relatively short for him. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rare that he has made something kind of, I don't know, Fleet is the wrong word because I think his films are fleet. I think, you know, there is a sense of rhythm and propulsion. I think that's so much to do with his long-term creative collaborator, editor, Thelma Schoonmaker. She's brilliant and her work here is brilliant as well because you really feel the sense of forward motion and of kind of going downhill. I read in a, a great review of the film, I think it was in reverse shot, of the rhythm of the film being sort of pedal, pedal, break which I think is a really evocative way of, of thinking about the rhythm of it. But it's so kind of fun and fast and sprightly. And then, like Tim said, in that final third, it's like a weight is sort of dropped on your chest and it's absolutely devastating. Yeah, and this is told in flashback with voiceover. Scorsese's done that many, many times before with Goodfellas, obviously notably in terms of this film's kind of subject matter, and Casino, I think, as well, right? It's, it's someone kind of looking back. Is this a sort of hackneyed thing? I mean, obviously, I know you guys both love the movie. 
I think it's such a good way of letting time pass and sort of events pass pretty quickly. How is voiceover used in this? Because we're, we're Frank Sheeran, we start, Frank Sheeran is in a Catholic care home and he's talking to someone, he's talking kind of to camera, right? How is voiceover used in the movie? It does feel as though he's he is using that casino Goodfellas yeah. kind of method of getting us inside these characters. But I actually think he's also borrowing from someone else, and that is Sergio Leone, Once Upon a Time in America specifically, which began with De Niro's character in an opium den, thinking back over the kind of tragic events of his entire life. And this one actually feels almost more like that in its structure than Scorsese's own films. I think partly because the subject of old age is more to the fore here than it has been ever before in Scorsese. Most so people don't logical. get there in many of Scorsese's Absolutely. more and gangster films. Right? And there are inbuilt, there's an inbuilt joke about that in the film, actually, yeah. which is that as we meet many of the more minor characters, a caption comes up on screen to tell us exactly when they died and in what circumstances. <laughs> and very few of them make it into the kind of cancer years, it has to be said. But that really does work well. And I think that one further point about the length for me is that even though this is you know his longest ever film, I genuinely think it earns it because the scope of it, in terms of not only the, the length of time covered, but the kind of human depth of the subject, merits that full treatment. Whereas I think some of his other projects have felt to me a little bit bloated. I think Thelma Schumacher should have done a much sort of brisker job on Hugo, for instance, which really felt way too lumbering for a film that was kind of aimed at children. So I think this time it really deserves to be that long and it really works. And it just requires a bit of patience in the early going. But once you're strapped in, it really pays off. So that, we'll talk about the depth in a minute and the kind of, it's been described in reviews as well as having a sort of Zalik-like nature. Frank Sheeran turns up at all sorts of different things. But we'll come back to the history in a minute. Let's deal with the performances because most of the large players in this, the large characters in this, have received very good notices, Simran. Tell us about De Niro, Pacino, Joe Pesci especially. He's being nudged towards Oscar territory. I mean, I particularly enjoyed it, but t- tell us what you loved about the performances. I think it's, you know, veteran actors at the absolute peak of their powers. I think something, though, that I, that was distracting for me was Robert De Niro's blue-coloured contacts. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. I mean, maybe, maybe we, we'd get onto that later when we sort of talk about the technology and how that's used in the film. But I, d- I did find that very curious. But, yeah, you have these three, you know, brilliant, brilliant actors who are very rarely seen together. I mean, De Niro and Pacino have only been together, I think, three times notably in Godfather 2 and Heat and I forget the other film. There's a film called Righteous Kill that they're in, which mm. is awful. But they, ne- but they don't it. have scenes together in that film, do they? They do a few. They do have a few scenes in that one, yeah. Okay. But obviously in Godfather 2 they don't at all. But, yeah. but it's sort of minor compared with these two films that they're in. And um, seeing the interplay with, with that kind of level of craft is amazing. I think Joe Pesci is perhaps the standout performer of all of them, just because we haven't really seen him in this mode. The character he plays, um, Russell Buffalino, know he's so cold and calm and quiet and sort of chilling a different sort of pesci menace exactly and uh, but still utterly menacing right and joe pesci we know him for these sort of hot-headed sort of almost comically angry enraged characters i'm thinking of goodfellas but also you know home alone home alone (laughs) that was exactly the reference that i was going to go for and so seeing his kind of control and mastery here is you know wonderful yeah, I kind of put me in mind of like 10,000 years BC watching the T-Rex and the Triceratops battling it out, you know, these two big beasts fighting to the death. 
they're not fighting in this movie, but watching Pacino and De Niro, Tim, sort of chew up the screen in a good way was a great joy. And both of them caring and both of them, I think, knowing the significance of the moment, it seems. That's right. And I think there is joy in this film. And there's a lot of affectionate comedy, particularly between those two characters. One of my favourite scenes in the film, which is sort of roughly halfway, has them both in pyjamas, <laughs> both getting into sort of separate beds in the same room. And this is this signals a development in their relationship because when they first meet... De Niro has to camp out on the sort of sofa bed while he's acting as Pacino's bodyguard. But by this point, they've become friends, and so they have the same size bed to get into. But it's a very telling scene because there's a, a moment at the end of that scene where De Niro takes off his watch and puts it on the nightstand next to his gun, and then we fade. And that's a very, very telling and rather chilling shot, I think. It's on the nightstand, and it sets up sort of thoughts about what might happen later in the film. I love them both together. I think Pacino gives us the fireworks, which we kind of need from that character. Mm. Um, so he he's, plays Jimmy Hoffa. He's Jimmy Hoffa, boss. the teamster yeah. boss. And uh, it's definitely the most flamboyant turn in the film. And that's sort of what you want from Pacino, but it's, he does it better than he's done in 20 years, I would say. And De Niro, I, I, I'm going to come back on to Pesci, who I love in it as well, and he gives that sort of softly, softly menace but De Niro's performance is a real slow burn as well and the richest characterization in terms of every facet of his life being explored including his terrible relationship with his daughter played by Anna Paquin who barely speaks in the film which I think for some people is a, is a huge problem but the whole point is the disconnection between those two characters and the power so of her and the, yeah and, that's, and she she's such a good she's such a good actor her kind of her silence speaks volumes. There is a force. There's to some the wonderful silence, scenes, yeah. especially a couple of the funerals in the film, where she's so powerful and she's so good. One of the things Simran mentioned this was, and I've got it in my notes, is old blue eyes? Question mark <laughs> exclamation mark. So let's talk about the CGI. Let's talk about the kind of de aging that is done to characters as they kind of time travel through this movie. I also found De Niro with blue eyes. He's Irish. So he's got blue eyes. I think we could have had not we could have not had that and just pretended that he was Irish for the duration of the film because he still looks fairly De Niro-ish. He still looks like his um, surname isn't O'Connor, basically, for most of the film. Was that a distraction for you, Simon, or did you just kind of get used to it with all the all the rest of the CGI that's that's in movies? Listen, I'm gonna be honest. The CGI is bad. These actors are well into their 70s. They're not the same kind of physicality as they used to be, and it shows even though the kind of like the technology of it means that their faces might be sort of convincing enough the physicality of how they move their bodies are shuffling around like old men and it's awkward but they're 25 but they're, well they're, they're sort of like in their 40s yeah. and so you there's you notice it particularly in this one scene where um, Robert De Niro's character starts to beat up somebody outside a shop and he's sort of kicking him in the face and, you know, it's it's an old man <laughs> kind of struggling to, to summon physical power. But I don't think it ruins the film. I don't think it detracts from the film's power. I don't think it detracts from the power of the performances. And there's a weird, interesting thing that's going on in sort of being forced to confront your memories of these actors when they were in their prime, often in Scorsese movies, actually, with the knowledge that they're old. I think there's something, there's a kind of like productive tension there. Yeah. But it is jarring. And yeah, it's not always convincing. Yeah, there was a funny bit where they stop the car when they're going on this road trip and Frank Sheeran is driving. Russell, the Joe Pesci character, is next to him. Their wives obviously are in the back wanting a cigarette break. And they stop the car at a place that has some significance for them earlier. I think it's in fact where Frank and Russell first meet. 
And that there's a sort of strange, it's a CGI garage. That was a jarring piece of CGI for me. It looked strange. And I kind of, I thought, you know, it looked a bit like a sort of Phantom Menace spaceship or something. So there's quite a lot of it in the movie. But as I guess you're saying, you get used to it because the story's so fleet of foot. Yeah, and I do, I think it will date badly, the CGI that's been used here. It is not good but I still think it's sort of worth doing it that way just simply to have the consistency instead of using actors younger actors and things because we're spanning across what is it 60 years of time Mm. and I think the disruption of trying to use different actors even though Scorsese can do that and he cast uh, a brilliant actor as the young Ray Liotta in Goodfellas, mm. and that worked very well. But to do all of these guys in in some sort of younger incarnation, I think, would have broken the film in half, essentially. So he's sort of chosen this compromise to kind of allow them to be in throughout the film, and I think it is worth it. And the other thing I would say is that the most jarring leap happens right at the beginning, when we go from De Niro in aged up in the care home right to the very youngest De Niro we will meet in the film driving a truck that lurch is quite extreme but then you have the whole rest of the film to get used to the technology mm. but also the characters getting older from that point forth so we're catching up with real De Niro from then on so it's you, you, you kind of get the worst out of the way soon which is something <laughs> so we mentioned that there's a lot of history in this there's a sort of zelig like nature to this and on that note let's hear this is the phone call where Russell Joe Pesci introduces Frank Sheeran, that's Robert De Niro, to Jimmy Hoffa, Al Pacino, on the phone. Let me put McGee on the phone. Hello? Hi, my friend, how are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone and let you talk to him, OK? Right. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I I do. I do, and I I also do my own carpentry. Ah, I'm glad to hear that. And we're referencing there the, uh, the Brandt book, I Heard You Paint Houses. This is Hitman slang. It's Hitman slang for, you know, spattering the walls with blood, essentially. Yeah. So if you do your own carpentry as well, you really are quite a, quite a useful man with presumably everything from a, a revolver to lead piping, I'd hope. Yeah, and there's a brilliant indication of how many um, murders De Niro has carried out because we see that he each time he throws a gun over it's into quite, the yeah. river and then we see a shot that the camera sort of sinks down to the riverbed and we see that the sheer number, the sheer amount of firepower that has sort of stashed up on the riverbed. <laughs> enough, the to, enough to arm a small country, yeah. apparently. So, yeah, we, we have the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Watergate, JFK and the mob. Uh, the mob and the White House, the unions, and obviously Hoffa in this. But again, this, this, there's a huge amount of history in this. You don't feel like this is kind of ticking things off a list, though. It's just how you realise how the mob and how violence and how the kind of a man's world seems to, you know, that, that mid-20th century period seems to be. How do they deal with history in the film? Well, I think Scorsese is trying to make all of these connections between all of these really kind of violent acts that have happened in civic society, in history, in politics, and then a, a sort of more granular sort of family level between all of the, the characters and their personal connections and the, the sort of violence that's required of the average American man that's sort of built into the work, the everyday sort of working life. I think that's the, the sort of connection that he's trying to draw out. And what about the dialogue? There's, I mean, a lot of this is done through dialogue. We heard Pesci, Pacino and De Niro on the phone just then. 
And let's just just listen to their voices and listen to the little ad-libbed grunts and bits and bobs in there. It's a dialogue-heavy film. How snappy was it for you? Because this is one of the propulsive elements of the movie. Yeah, I think I really think Stephen Zalian did a brilliant job on this script. There's a lot of argo and sort of snappy banter, but yeah. there's also some sort of slightly surreal and extended set pieces with the dialogue. Pacino gets a classic one near the end about fish in the back of a car, uh, which is it's going to stand as one of the great Pacino scenes, I think. And there's another equally good one where he talks about what you do with a guy who's got a gun pointing at you versus a knife pointing at you. And he does this little <laughs> turn. And his body language in that scene is so Pacino and so sort of sharp and gestural. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, there's some prop- there is some there are some meme worthy moments if that's not too undervalue the film hugely. Well, it's very funny and you know we've been talking about this film as one of Scorsese's best. It's three and a half hours. It deals with all these complex things that happened in history, but the experience of watching it is it's quite light. It's episode not light, light is the wrong word, but it feels like it goes down easy, right? Yeah. But it's episodic the way it's structured and it sort of builds momentum and it keeps you in this sort of quite comfortable place with all these jokes and then in the final act suddenly these small quotidian things become so shattering that's where the real power is in that kind of tonal shift and i think and and maybe the performances add to that actually because we start out and everything is quite underplayed dialed down there's subtle performances there is shouting there's bits and bobs of shouting from jimmy hoffa that's his personality he's not necessarily kind of throwing people off bridges but i suppose the timbre and the cadence of those performances help for the film to be a slow burn do you know what I mean? We don't start out with crazy violence and lots of snappy stuff at the beginning. And in general, the violence is less crazy in this film than it's ever been in his previous mob films. There are kind of outbursts of it. But he's really thinking about it more than just simply wanting to show it or jazz his film up with it, yeah. which you can slightly accuse some of his other films of doing. Not here, I think. And, the, yeah, the sense of its cost and the waste really builds up as it goes along. There's also, it's quite kind of morbidly and darkly funny. There's a sort of jet black streak to it running yeah. all the way through, I think. And, yeah, it's very enjoyable. It's like sort of sinking into an armchair for a real saga at the beginning. And you're sort of, you're swept along with it. And then gradually the chill seeps in, I think, in the last hour. Well, and it is that kind of cognizance of mortality which kind of creeps up. We don't want to spoil anything at the end. But, yeah, it becomes... It, it gets slow, it, it gets old, but not in that way, doesn't yeah, it, right? Yeah. I mean, he's very good with that. I mean, this old folks home that Frank Sheeran ends up in, it's kind of chilly, the leaves are off the trees. It's it's okay, but it's it's a bit little sad. Well, I mean, Scorsese is, what, 80 now? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I hope that he's in good health as far as I know he is, but he's getting to an age where, you know, He's getting old. I don't. I don't know how how yeah. to put it any any more delicately. And I've you really get the sense and the weight of somebody questioning what it means to be coming in towards the end of your life, or at the end of their life, and reflecting. It's got this very kind of reflective quality to it. I just realised what one film that it reminded me of when it's charting De Niro's kind of degeneration and his ageing and sort of all the kind of physical indignities as you jump forward further and further into his old age. And that's actually uh, Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, oh, yeah. uh, which towards the end, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character just kind of keeps jumping ahead and losing more and more uh, of, of his near and dear behind him. And he's sort of thinking back and isolated. And it's got something of that. And that, I think, has a devastating kind of last half hour as well, that film. Holly and I, when we, were, when we walked out of the screening theatre after we watched it, paid particularly close attention to the food and particularly Jimmy Hoffa's puddings and ice cream sundaes and all the rest of it. 
did that stand out for you on a slightly lighter, certainly sweeter note, Simran? It kind of, I had my eyes all over that part of the film, for sure. A hundred percent. When I watched this film, I was like noting down all of the food that they ate, thinking that this, this needs to be some kind of article. I think he's really kind of tracking this idea of, you know, Americana through the food. There's the hot dogs. Mm. There's the the Italianness of the the sort of bread dipped in the wine. Um, there's these steak dinners at the beginning that he, he he keeps providing the steak to the restaurants. Right? Yeah, those huge exactly. flanks of beef. Yeah, and then the elaborate ice cream sundaes that Jimmy provides for Peggy Frank's daughter. Yeah, it's great. It's time to move it on. Um, we've discussed the Irishman. Tim, you wanted to point us in the direction of Joe Pesci. Where's he been for twenty odd years? That's the question I was going to sort of attempt to answer, really, because I don't think anyone will have necessarily seen him in any film since about 1998, when he was in Lethal Weapon 4. That was the last big film he was in, and he's done a couple of tiny projects since then that no one has seen. He basically announced he was retiring in 99, and every attempt to lure him out of retirement, which, for instance, Louis C.K. tried to do a few years ago to get him to kind of co-star in a comedy... Joe Pesci did not want to know. And he essentially sort of, with a lot of F words, tells people where to go when they try. And and even in the pre-production on on The Irishman, De Niro was especially kind of leaning on him, saying, this is really going to be worth it. Come on, we want you on board. And he would just basically tell him to F off every single time. It took them years to get him to do it. Thoroughly worth his time and ours that he's been able to give this performance, which is a, a bit of a career crowner, I think. And he could even win himself uh, a second Oscar. When he won for Goodfellas, which was Best Supporting Actor uh, in 1991, he gave, I think, the shortest Oscar acceptance speech of all time. Uh, He just came up to the podium, he looked out into the crowd, and he said, thanks, it's my privilege, and walked off. That's Joe Pesci. So, Good for you know, him. A man of few, a few but but uh, potent words. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting thing with him. I read that actually, in that for Goodfellas, it was it was De Niro that got him cast. He he kind of sort of twisted Scorsese's arm because he rated some movie that um, Pesci had been in in 1978 that not enough people had seen and la la la, which is an interesting thing. So that would have been, been for Raging kind of, Bull, right? That would have been for the first uh, for Raging first Bull, collaboration. I mean, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, which was a great leg up for him. He he was not a known name when Raging Bull came out and that got him his first Oscar nomination. But then no one else really used him much in the 80s. He was kind of scrabbling around. He has a small role in Once Upon a Time in America, which I guess was, again, De Niro doing him a favour. He has a small role in Nicholas Rogue's Eureka, but these are really tiny roles. Nothing much until Goodfellas. And then, funnily enough, when he gets his Oscar for Goodfellas, at the same time, round the world, he's in Home Alone, which is such a huge global success. So he that kind of powers him up. And he takes a few roles in the 90s. He does a few sort of Hollywood jobs and is, an, is now an Oscar-winning star. He does Casino and gets a bigger role in Casino, actually, than he had in either Raging Bull or Goodfellas. So, you know, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to make it work for him. And then he just decides, no, I've, I've kind of had enough. And he sort of stepped away, um, bought a house in New Jersey. He still sings. Uh, he always yeah. deci- wanted to be a singer so when he, he, was when a he song started and off. Man, yeah, and he's released like that. He's got a third album coming out now called Still Singing, which is being timed to be released. Th- a 13 track crooner album coming out roughly Great when title, the Irishman still singing. Still singing. Yeah. Do the stills in, in, in italics. <laughs> I wish he'd called it Funny How, though. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a funny one, isn't it? I wonder if, if he just kind of went AWOL because he kept on getting kind of watered-down versions of his Raging Bull and Goodfellas roles. That, that must happen 
all the time. Yeah, I think there were only two modes that they were really... I mean, there's My Cousin Vinny is another one I yeah. did mention, which was actually a, bit, a sleeper hit when that came out and uh, still a film that people look back on quite fondly. But really, there were only two modes they were willing to cast him in. You know, heavy-duty Scorsese mob mode or kind of wiseacre, slightly annoying, kind of comic, ethnics, Italian sidekick mode from Lethal Weapon and the Home Alone yeah. stuff. Uh, and he probably just got a bit bored of those dual pigeonholes, if you like. I like the way he responds to uh, all offers of work in the former register. Yes, he does. <laughs> of terrifying gangsters. Yes, he does. <laughs> um, Simran, you wanted to talk about... You, you kind of... We waxed towards there at the end of our discussion on the film itself towards directors in their later period. Yeah, well, so this film reminded me of, a, of an article I'd read some time ago in, in the New York Times by the writer A.O. Scott. And the, you can look it up. It's from 2009 and, and the article is called Directors in Their Magic Hour. And it was actually a kind of piece plugging a series that BAM Cinematheque were running about directors' late films. And I just thought the piece was kind of interesting because it's thinking about iconoclastic filmmakers and, you know, this idea of the late film, which is not necessarily their last film, but things that they make when they've established themselves and they have a fluency and a confidence in the style of filmmaking. But there's something anachronistic about the films that they're making. And um, they're either sort of adopting new technologies or dealing with themes that are sort of more contemporary or move away from stuff that they've done before. But yet there's still a sense of who they always have been and what their identity is as a filmmaker kind of still present in these films. And I think this movie, The Irishman, really fits the late film description Mm. because you have that anachronism in the fact that Scorsese is using CGI technology, although, like, of course, he has used this before in films like Hugo. Um, But he's really sort of the whole de-aging stuff that he's utilising, it's it's pretty cutting edge for somebody who has historically made very grounded pictures that are often shot on 35mm and, you know, based in on location. It's, it's doing something different. And yet it's the themes that have been preoccupying him for a long time. Family, loyalty, sort of morality. What kind of a person can do all of that killing and what does that do to a man what does it do to his relationships um so yeah i thought that was a kind of interesting way into the film beautifully said the irishman is out in cinemas now and will arrive on netflix on the 27th of november thank you very much to my guests today simran hans and tim roby and of course to my producer holly fisher we'll be back at the same time next week but until then from me robert bound thanks i'm privileged (laughs) 